welcome to the Teacher Kids podcast, where we discuss learning, child development, and how to optimize your child's education by tailoring it to their individual needs. I'm Manisha, a pre-K through 12th grade teacher of 20 years, tech entrepreneur and founder of Teacher Kids, which is this podcast and an online homeschooling community where families can get resources, support, and community to help their children thrive academically, socially, and emotionally. Today, we're diving into educating boys. My guest today is Dr. Leonard Sachs. He is a family physician, psychologist, and best-selling author of multiple books on child and adolescent development, The Collapse of Parenting, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, Why Gender Matters, and he has traveled around the world giving workshops, worked with more than 460 schools, universities, juvenile justice facilities, communities of faith, corporation, pre-K and nursery schools, community groups, parent groups, the list goes on. So he has the research and also the experience. Today, we're going to learn about some of the developmental differences in the brains of boys and girls, how parents and teachers can cater learning to those needs, and get some of Dr. Sachs's concrete tips on navigating social media, which is a big topic. If you feel like you need more tailored support after listening to today's episode, I encourage you to join the Teacher Kids community at teacherkidspod.com, where we provide tailored advice and expert support to homeschooling families in all 50 states and 60 different countries as of today. We also offer virtual clubs where kids can connect with other children around the world in educational project-based learning in topics like coding, chess, climate action, origami, or even Minecraft. So without further ado, Dr. Sachs, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for inviting me. So just to kick it off, you might be a little bit surprised about how I discovered you. <laughs> I actually found your work in a dating book, um, and it talks about the academic achievement gap between men and women and how a lot of women are trying, they're having difficulty finding a partner because there are so many few uh, college-educated men relative there to women. There are not enough good men to go around. <laughs> exactly. So, and he actually suggests dating more blue collar men. So anyway, I just checked the most recent census and census and it says that 56 of, of all the students enrolled in colleges today, um, 56% of them are women and 44% of them are male. So... Uh, why yeah, is I would this? quarrel with I would quarrel with those numbers. The latest oh, okay. numbers from uh, that's the, the 2021 the Street, census. So. Yeah, I was going to say the latest yeah. numbers from a comprehensive Wall Street Journal review is uh, 5941 oh, uh, at American Four Year Universities. Women now outnumber men 5941 at private colleges. Private four year colleges. It's now reached 6040. Women outnumbering men by three to two. And one of the experts quoted in the Wall Street Journal article said, "There is no taper in that trend line. Within a few years, we will be at 6633. Two women for every one man." And you know, I've, I've given. Uh, I've led that workshop, which I call the Boys Adrift Workshop, after my book, uh, Exploring Why That Is Happening and What You Can Do About That, titled Boys Adrift. Uh, 
I've given that workshop to many audiences, and sometimes during Q&A, there's really hostile pushback. And, mm. and one, one woman said, all right, fine. So women now outnumber men at university, 60-40. You know what? 50 years ago, men outnumbered women at university by pretty much the same ratio, and nobody was upset about it then. So big deal. Why should anyone care? that the pendulum has swung the other way. And it's a fair question, and I have an answer for that question. Uh, so 50 years ago, she's quite right. 50 years ago, at American four-year colleges and universities, men did outnumber women 58 to 42. But 50 years ago, if a man was going, to, if a man had earned a four-year degree and he was going to marry a woman, he might have a number of qualifications in mind for his bride, but it turns out that educational attainment was not one of them. If she was pretty, that would more or less take care of it. She didn't have to have a four-year degree. Being pretty would pretty much uh, do the job. Today, if a young woman has earned a four-year degree and she's looking to marry a man, she's looking for a man who has equal or greater educational attainment. And this is not just confined to college-educated women. So I'm a family doctor, as you said. In my own practice, a young woman I know well. I've known her since she, she was little. But this story takes place. She's 20 years old. And she has two young kids at home. And I said, I said, Linda, I bumped into Brett the other day. And he's just going on and on about how great you are and how funny you are and how pretty you are. And he told me he's asked you to marry him twice. Linda why don't you want to marry the father of your two children? And she said, Dr. Sachs, I already got two babies at home. I don't need a third. Across the entire demographic spectrum, college educated, not college educated, if a woman's going to marry a man, she's looking for a man who has achieved as, at least as much as she has, oh. who is as motivated and hardworking as she is. And as I said, there are no longer enough good men to go around. That's why it matters. That's why we should care. That's why feminists should be as concerned about this as anyone else. Uh, because if a woman's going to marry a man, she wants to marry a man who's as accomplished and hardworking as she is, and there are no longer enough good men to go around. And that's fairly new. It was not true 50 years ago when college-educated men outnumbered college-educated women, uh, when valedictorians across the United States at high school were more likely to be male than female. Today, among valedictorians in the United States at high schools across this country, uh, women, uh, girls now outnumber boys by th uh, more than 70 to 30, almost three to one girls to boys. Yeah. So, I mean, I think at least for my community, the parents in my community do care a great deal about their children's education and that their children are well-educated whether or not they get married. So I, I'm curious why. why. Why is there this huge gap between men and women's um, educational attainment? Well, the short answer is the subtitle to my book, Boys Adrift. The subtitle is The Five Factors Driving the Growing Epidemic of Unmotivated Boys and Underachieving Young Men. It's not just one thing. It's five things. Uh, and I do offer a six-hour full-day workshop where we go into all those factors and what parents Fantastic. can do about them. We will provide a link to that for sure. <laughs> but it is a... There's more than one thing going on. And, you know, I'm not the first author to write about this. Uh, uh, the first author to write about this uh, would be Christina Hoff Summers, uh, who wrote a book called The War Against Boys, published more than 20 years ago as we began to see this, this gender gap emerge. You know, I'm old enough to remember 
Less than 30 years ago, 1994, Myra and David Sadker published their book, Failing at Fairness. Based on their research, they, they went into American schools nationwide in the 70s and 80s, and they found that boys greatly outnumbered girls among high achievers, that boys were more likely to be valedictorians, that teachers called on boys more than girls, uh, that boys and girls would both have their hands raised and teachers called on the boys and neglected the girls. And so they wrote their book, Failing at Fairness, lamenting the fact that boys did much better than girls in school. And that's less than 30 years ago. But Christina Hoff Summers was arguably the first uh, just over 20 years ago to call attention to the fact that, hey, that might have been true in the 70s and 80s. It's not true now. Things are flipping in the other direction. Um, and she asserted in uh, her book that the decline of boys was due to a left wing liberal conspiracy led by Hillary Clinton. Now, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has has many achievements, but she's not that well organized. And and I respectfully disagree with Christina Hoff Summers. I I've shared a podium with her on several occasions, and and she's great fun to to talk to. But but I no, she's got the answer wrong. The the, the there are there are a number of books uh, on this topic. Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution uh, just published a book uh, called Of Boys and Men. Uh, where uh, he looks at the same thing. Kay Heimowitz uh, published a book uh, basically saying that the rise of women has led to the decline of men. Uh, and that's a very popular notion among people writing on this topic, that there's something about modern culture that inevitably uh, uh, disincentivizes, uh, removes motivation from boys. Uh, Kay Heimowitz uh, Kay Heimowitz's book really is the best as far as just giving you this avalanche of data showing that not only in school, but in the workplace. Kay Heimowitz shows that you look at, at American cities, young people under 35 years of age with no children at home, young women now earn more than their brothers do, 20% more. It's a, it's a significant difference. Why is that? Well, it's because they're not working the same jobs. The women are more likely to be college educated, have jobs requiring a college degree. The men is, man is less likely to be college educated. And he's, he's, uh, you know, he's, uh, working at Starbucks. Uh, uh, but why is this? Okay. Why so we this? all agree, uh, on the, on the, the, the basics it's of the real. answer, the, <laughs> the answer yeah. is it's real and yeah. it's because of diminished motivation. Boys are now less motivated than their sisters. All of us, uh, Christina Hoff Summers, Richard Reeves, Kay Heimowitz, and myself, we all agree that this gender gap has grown because boys are now less motivated by their than their sisters are motivated. Boys are less motivated compared to their sisters. Where we differ is the question of why are they less motivated? And Richard Reeves and Kay Heimowitz say, well, it's just an inevitable result of the workplace. Uh, Kay Heimowitz says, look, 50 years ago, a man expected to be the sole breadwinner. So he felt that he had to work hard and achieve and get a good job so he could show the young woman. He could say, look, marry me. We'll start a family together. I'll be a good provider. But Kay Heimowitz says, uh, Young men today look around, they see the young women are doing better than they are in, in college. Uh, they're working harder than they are in the workplace. And she says, and I'm quoting now because I've done this workshop many times and quoting from Kay Hamwitz's book. She says that the lack of motivation among young men is due, quote, to their uncertainty 
regarding their role as providers in the global marketplace of the 21st century. Uncertainty regarding their role as providers in the global marketplace of the 21st century. End quote. Well, I know she's wrong. How do I know she's wrong? Well, as you noted in your introduction, I have visited a great many schools, including elementary schools. So I was visiting an elementary school and I'd work out with the principal in advance, of course, what the agenda would be. I'd start the day in her office and she's just going to talk about what she's observing and her concerns. I was going to observe some classrooms. Then I'm going to meet some students, meet with the students. Then in the afternoon, a workshop for teachers, early dismissal, and then the evening presentation to parents. So it's the beginning of the day. I'm in I'm w- in the waiting area for her office waiting to meet with her. And as I'm waiting, some kids walk in one after the other after the other after the other until finally there's nine little kids in the principal's office all sent down for discipline referrals. All boys. So I kind of pride myself on my ability to strike up conversations with 7-year-olds. So I said, "What are you guys doing here? We got in trouble. What'd you get in trouble for?" Uh Teacher saw me and Jason throwing snowballs at each other, and so we got sent down here. Teacher said, draw a picture of anything you want, and I drew a picture of a gun, and I got sent down here. Uh, Brett and me were saying, bang, bang, you're dead, and we got sent down here. Okay, so uh, what do you guys think of school? School's stupid. School's for girls. I hate school. Why do you hate school? None of these boys said anything remotely like, well, I'm uncertain about what my role will be as a provider in the global marketplace of the 21st century. Boys doing things that boys have always done, drawing pictures of weapons, pointing fingers at each other, saying, bang, bang, you're dead, now gets you in trouble. Boys' hostile attitude towards education now begins very early. By six, seven, eight years of age, it is now common to find boys who decided schools for girls, schools stupid, working hard to get a good mark is something girls do. Academic achievement has become unmasculine, and that is firmly fixed in the minds of many boys by eight years of age. And this is why I'm such a fan of homeschooling, Mm -hmm. because the homeschooling parent can change that. They can do whatever they want. (laughs) The homeschooling parent can can easily create an environment where this boy can be a boy and be a gentleman and a scholar. And many of the phenomena that I describe about the toxic effects of uh, the school that is unfriendly to boys are very easy for the homeschooling parent to fix. Uh, I don't talk, you will find no mention of homeschooling in any of my books. And you know, I've, I've talked with leaders of several homeschooling uh, movements. Well, let's think about this. To be a homeschooling parent, what is required? First of all, you need a two-parent household. That rules out a lot of households right off the bat. I grew up, my mom was a single mom. She couldn't have homeschooled. She was, a full t- she was working full-time. Uh, you need a two-parent household where one of the parents is willing, able, and qualified to teach the entire curriculum um, with some help, but still willing to make that effort, which is a big effort. And you need a two-parent household that can survive on the income of one parent. So uh, every homeschooling group that I've ever run the numbers with, we they've agreed fewer than half. Only a minority of American households can even consider homeschooling. So in consultation with my editors, we've all said, no, we're not going to, we're not going to explore a topic that more than half the readers cannot consider. 
Uh, when you're writing a book for a popular audience, every sentence should be relevant to everybody. You don't want to include anything that is going to alienate uh, that single mom who cannot. She doesn't want to hear about how great homeschooling is because she can't do it. And so you'll find no mention of homeschooling in any of my books, even though I'm a big fan. That's so interesting. Maybe they decided you were already writing about enough controversial topics to include homeschooling. And I just want to quickly add for our listeners that um, there's a lot of families who are starting to homeschool now that haven't been before. And I work with a lot of single moms. Um, the black homeschooling population has grown faster than any other homeschooling population in the U.S. to five times with 16% of black families homeschooling and the way that a lot of families are doing it by is by sharing childcare because they find that the educational part getting the foundations of math and English language arts um, is does not take six or seven hours a day. It can be done in one or two hours. There's a lot more remote work opportunities emerging. So I just I don't want to go too into that's not the topic of today's episode. But if you are a single mom listening, um, there's definitely options for you. Um, this is so fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about um, the developmental differences between boys and girls, because you have done some really interesting, um, you know, you've really looked at the research and seen that. And could you talk a little bit, a bit about just at the early stage, how um, some patterns you've seen in brains developing differently in boys and girls? Yeah. So researchers at Cambridge University uh, were interested in vocabulary among toddlers. And they looked at a large number of 18-month-olds. And they found the average 18-month-old girl has a vocabulary of about 90 words. The average 18-month-old boy has a vocabulary of about 40 words. And this is really important for parents to understand, especially if you have an older daughter and a younger son. Don't compare your son to your daughter. Again, I'm a family doctor. I was in this situation. Mom has an 18-month-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And she's concerned. She said, you know, when my daughter was this age or even younger, she said, I could sit my daughter on my knee and bounce her up and down. And I'd say, Baba Boo Boo. And she'd say, Baba Boo Boo. And I'd say, E-E-O-O. And she'd say, E-E-O-O. And we could do that for like 20 minutes. And we just have a great time. We crack each other up, just imitating the sounds that each other were making. She said, I tried doing that with my son. And somebody rode their bicycle past the front door. He's looking at that. And then there's another sound in the house. He's looking over there. He's very distractible. And I Googled that and it said it could be a sign of autism. I'm worried he's on the autism spectrum because he's highly distractible. And that could be a sign, right, of autism. I said, well, that is true, but it could also be a sign of boy. Uh, but she was very concerned. She insisted on a formal evaluation. So I said, all right, treatment and learning centers, Rockville, Maryland, right next to the hospital. They, they do very good play-based assessment. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have given in. I should have explained to her why you don't compare to your, your son to your daughter. But I, I wrote the referral. That was a big mistake. So she takes her son in for this full-day comprehensive play-based assessment. She comes back in tears. She said, they're concerned. They're concerned. They said he's significantly below average. They said the average vocabulary of a nine, of a of a of a eighteen month old kid should be sixty five words, and they estimate his vocabulary is at best forty words. He's he's significantly below average. Okay, forty words for boys, ninety words for girls. Forty plus ninety is one hundred thirty. One hundred thirty divided by two is sixty five. The average eighteen month old child 
has a vocabulary of about 65 words. That is a true statement. It's also meaningless. A statement can be both true and meaningless because there's no such thing as a child. There's either a girl or a boy. Well, two in 10,000 kids are, not quite two in 10,000 kids are intersex, both male and female, neither male nor female. Well, two in 10,000, that's a pretty low number. Intersex kids aside, every child's either a girl or a boy. You need to compare boys to boys. His vocabulary was about 40 words. He's average. He is not below average. He's fine. And I never wrote another referral to that center because they should know better. They should know that you compare boys to boys and compare girls to girls. Don't compare kids to the average child because uh, the, the boy is going to come out looking like he's severely delayed, which this boy is not. So if you have an older daughter, younger son, do not compare your son to your daughter. It will be misleading. That's a great point. And I will just say, you know, and I've been a teacher for 20 years and I was also a child care provider. So I've seen everything from zero to 80. And, you know, when we talk about gender, obviously, it's a controversial topic. It's been politicized, unfortunately. And, you know, I think our perspectives are similar, but differ in some ways. But I think, you know, for the purpose of this conversation, what I'd like to say is that, you know, there's a wide range in the kind of behavior you'll see in a boy and a wide range in the behavior you kind of see in a girl. But on the other hand, it can just like autism is a useful framework, like dyslexia is a framework. Gender is also a framework that can help you learn how to navigate um, a child's development. And, you know, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, for example, when a two-year-old boy walks into my house, it's like he's just looking around for what he can destroy with this like glint in his eye of like, oh, my gosh, how are the, how can I destroy this entire place? And to me, it's it's lovely. It's amusing. I don't see a violent child. I just see a, a healthy young boy. Um do you, do you have any, I mean, I guess there's a kind of certain level of activity. Can you kind of comment on, on that aspect of, of young toddlers? Well, you did to talk about the variations. And I think the variations are, par, are important to understand because, so my book, Why Gender Matters, the subtitle is what parents and teachers need to know about the emerging science of sex differences. And I'm referring there not only to differences between girls and boys, but also to variations among boys and among girls. Not all boys are the rambunctious uh, warriors uh, that they're often caricatured as. Some boys are not. Some boys don't like to hit or be hit. Uh, they would rather color a picture of a flower. Uh, actually, about one in 12 boys. Uh, so, uh, the study, uh, the studies I'm citing there, researchers, uh, I cite five studies, one from the United States, one from England, one from South Africa, one from Japan, one from Thailand, in which researchers gave kids a blank piece of paper and a box of crayons and ask them to draw whatever they want. Girls everywhere draw people, pets, flowers, and trees. Usually two, three, or four arranged on a horizontal ground. The people have eyes, mouth, hair, and clothes. The girls use 10 or more crayons with a predominance of red, orange, yellow, green, beige, and brown. And this is true whether you're talking about Japanese girls in Japan or American girls in the United States. And when I do this workshop, I show the drawings and everyone can can recognize them because we've all seen girls drawing pictures of people, pets, flowers, and trees. Most boys in each of these studies, more than 90% of boys are trying to draw something radically different. They're trying to draw a scene of action at a moment of change, like a monster eating an alien, a rocket smashing into a planet. Uh, 
Human figures if present are often stick figures lacking eyes, mouth, hair, and clothes. The boys use six or fewer crayons with the predominance of black, gray, silver, and blue. And in my book, Why Gender Matters, we look into recent research on the visual system, hardwired differences in the visual system of all higher primates, not just humans, but also chimpanzees and monkeys. Uh, to understand where these differences are coming from. These are hardwired differences. They are not socially constructed. Uh, but in each of these five studies, about 8% of boys, about 1 in 12 boys, are drawing pretty much what the girls are drawing. They're drawing people, pets, and trees. They're not drawing a scene of action. But it turns out that those 1 in 12 boys, those gender atypical boys, drawing people, pets, and trees, have a lot in common with other boys who draw people, pets, and trees. They're at least three times more likely than other boys to have allergies, asthma, or eczema, sufficiently severe to warrant ongoing consultation with a physician. They may be athletic, but they're not playing football or ice hockey. They're playing tennis, track, or golf because they don't like to hit and they don't like to be hit. And they're much more likely than other boys in a school setting to become victims of bullying. Because a favorite game among 12-year-old boys is one boy says, hey, how about I hit you as hard as I can, and then you hit me as hard as you can. And this boy will say, but I don't want to hit you, and I don't want you to hit me. And he runs off and boom, marks himself as a victim of bullying. I want you to imagine two boys, Brett and Michael. Brett is all boy, likes to hit, loves football. Michael doesn't like to hit, doesn't like football, would much rather color a picture of a flower. Brett, the football player, turns out to be gay. Michael, the artist, turns out to be straight. The binaries do not align. Gender is complicated. But just because gender is complicated doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. And I always encourage homeschooling parents to read my book, Why Gender Matters, so that when you give your son and your daughter a blank piece of paper and a box of crayons, and your daughter's drawing this beautiful picture of flowers and, and puppies, and, and your son is drawing these scribbles in with black crayon that don't make any sense, and you ask him, what's going on in your picture? And he says, well, it's a car crash. This car is being crushed between these two. Uh, Many parents who don't have this understanding are likely to say, you know, car crash, that's so violent. And I, and I show the picture of the car crash in my presentation. Uh, that's so violent. You know, people are going to get killed or paralyzed. Look at your sister's picture. You know, it's so nice and no one's getting crushed or paralyzed. Do you, do you really have to draw something so violent? And the result is boys who at six years of age have decided that drawing is for girls. The lack of awareness of gender differences has the unintended consequence of reinforcing gender stereotypes. If you don't understand the differences between your son and your daughter in what kinds of pictures they want to draw, you're likely to reinforce the stereotypes that we find in the co-ed schools where boys will say drawing is for girls. When you look to see who took the advanced placement exam in art history last year across the United States at American high schools, you find that girls outnumbered boys by more than three to one, which is ironic in, in view of the fact that most of the artists they're studying are men. If you don't understand gender differences, you will tend to reinforce gender stereotypes. You'll end up with boys who think that drawing is for girls and girls who think computer coding is for boys. For sure. And I'll absolutely add that drawing is a form of self-expression. And so if your child is expressing a scene of violence, you know, if they're a boy, which might be more likely, or if, or if they're a girl, 
they're expressing something that inside themselves that they're using to make sense of this confusing world. And, and to say that's bad is not going to help them develop. Yeah. Well, and it's not necessarily pathological. So in Why Gender right. Matters, I cite another study where researchers hypothesized it. So they were giving uh, five-year-old kids a choice of what story to be read to them for story hour. And they hypothesized, they gave kids a choice of a romantic story where the knight and the princess get married, uh, the knight rescues the princess and then they get married, uh, a, a violent story where the knight attacks the dragon and chops its head off in a very gruesome way, and a mommy baby story about how much mommy loves her babies. They had, so they gave the kids a choice of three stories, uh, nurturing, violent, or romantic. And they hypothesized that kids who chose the violent story would be more likely themselves to be survivors of child abuse or neglect. For girls, their hypothesis received strong support in the data. The great majority of girls chose either the nurturing story or the romantic story. Very few st girls chose the violent story, and the few girls that chose the violent story were indeed more likely than other girls to be survivors of child abuse or neglect. For boys, the data provided no support at all for their hypothesis. The great majority of boys chose the violent story and boys who chose the violent story were not any more likely to be survivors of child abuse or neglect. And again, I assert in my book that this goes back to these hardwired differences in the visual system. There are two visual systems in the brains of all higher primates. That's not controversial. That's been established doctrine in neuroscience for almost 40 years. One visual system in our brains is looking for action, speed, change in direction, collision. It's called the magnocellular visual system. The other visual system in the brains of all higher primates, human, chimpanzee, monkey, is looking for color, detail, and texture. It's called the parvocellular visual system. We now know, and you'll find this research in my book, Why Gender Matters, that girls and women and females generally uh, across the primate order have more resources in the parvocellular system that's looking for color, detail, and texture. We now know that boys have more resources in the magnocellular visual system that's looking for speed, direction, collision. Uh, and what children choose to draw reflects those hardwired differences in the visual system. The great majority of girls are drawing colors with uh, pictures with color, detail, and texture. The great majority of boys are drawing pictures that have action, collision, something happening. And that's okay. Differences do not imply an order of rank. But if you want your boy to find his voice as an artist, you have to understand what is the picture he's trying to draw and help him to draw it better. So ask him, what are you drawing there? Oh, you want to make it look like your vehicle's going fast? Okay, well, well take your gray crayon, show some sand spitting up from the behind the wheels, and take your black crayon, show some stuff flying off the truck bed, and he will be encouraged. You got to understand what is the picture your son is trying to draw and help him to draw it better. Completely. Um, I want to ask you about literacy and handwriting, because this is something that I've observed and intrigues me. Um, but one of the things that I've observed in my own students that often um, young boys age five or six are more reluctant to, to do to learn handwriting. And I was wondering if that had to do with their brain development or if you had any thoughts on that. Okay, so Again, in Why Gender Matters, I share the research on brain development. Girls mature faster than boys do. And this is especially true in fine motor skills. Color within the lines. I remember another example from my own practice. Uh, 
these parents had enrolled their only child, a boy, in pre-K and were going to the first parent-teacher conference. And they were expecting to hear what a genius their son was. And they were shocked and astonished when the teacher said, you know, I, I do have some concerns. He's definitely struggling with some fine motor skills. You see how we put up the pictures of the kids and how nicely they colored Within the lines, there's Emily, there's Sonia, there's Vanessa. But we didn't put up your son's picture because he doesn't color within the lines. He's coloring all over the lines. He doesn't seem to care. Coloring within the lines, a fine motor skill. The four-year-old boy is going to lag far behind the four-year-old girl. Girls reach maturity in full maturity in brain development by about 22 years of age. Boys, not until 30 years of age. So that explains a lot if you think about it. Among adults, we find no difference in fine motor skills. A 30-year-old man is just as capable of doing calligraphy as a 22-year-old woman. In fact, when you look at professional calligraphers, people who earn their living doing calligraphy, you'll find more men than women uh, doing that. So men are certainly capable of coloring within lines and and mastering fine motor skills. Many great artists have been men. That certainly is a fine motor skill. However, in the co-ed school with teachers who've had no training in these differences, when you are requiring kids to learn cursive handwriting, the girls the six-year-old girls are going to be much better than the six-year-old boys. The 10-year-old girls are going to be much better than the 10-year-old boys. Boys in this country have now come to define masculinity negatively. I talk a lot about this in my book, Boys Adrift. They define masculinity negatively, which means that being a real man means not doing whatever girls do. If girls write neatly, then real men don't. When you actually look at the handwriting of American adults, you find that men scribble. Women in this country write more neatly than adult men do. That's not a matter of ability. Men are just as capable. Adult men are just as capable of writing neatly as adult women are, but they don't want to. They don't want to because at six years of age, they learn that girls write neatly and boys don't. And they define masculinity negatively. Being a real man means scribbling, not trying to write neatly. Again, the lack of awareness of gender differences as the unintended consequence of reinforcing gender stereotypes. So if you've got a son and a daughter, or if you're in a co-ed setting with same age kids, do not publicly display anybody's handwriting because you're going to end up reinforcing these gender stereotypes. You're going to have with boys who've decided that writing neatly is something girls do. Yes. I mean, one thing that I struggle with a lot as a teacher and an advisor to homeschooling families is this deeply entrenched belief that learning earlier is better. And I think a lot of families feel like when my child is younger, their brain is highly plastic. So I need to give them as much information as possible to absorb as early as possible. And then they'll be really great later on, which is true. Like, you know, Japanese or something that you learn naturally, perhaps, you know, but it's not true in my in my opinion, with something like learning how to read or learning handwriting. So how might a parent who is homeschooling and has this wonderful liberty to decide the time to introduce these skills? What, what are some signs that your son is ready to learn how to write, is ready to learn how to read? And, and you can feel okay until that point, um, not um, encouraging to, him to learn those skills. How do you know? What are the, what are the markers? First, I want to provide more evidence in support of what you just said, because my recommendations sometimes seem counterintuitive to many parents, but earlier is not better. 
with regard to phonics. Earlier is not better. Uh, when I attend, I attended public schools in Ohio, K through 12. And our kindergarten at Lomond Elementary School in Shaker Heights, Ohio, was about playing duck, duck, goose and finger painting and singing in rounds and going on field trips to the park where we'd splash in the pond to chase after tadpoles. I did not learn to read or write until first grade when I was six years old. And that was typical of American schools in that era. We're talking 40, 50 years ago. It is not typical today. That acceleration of the early elementary curriculum, kindergarten became first grade. And that happened in the United States in the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, the acceleration of the early elementary curriculum, this idea that earlier is better, took place before we had the MRI scans, which we didn't have until the mid-2000s, showing that in the language area, the brain of the five-year-old boy looks like the brain of a three-year-old girl. It is not developmentally appropriate to expect a five-year-old boy to sit still and learn about phonics and diphthongs. Uh, it's any more than it is to ask a three-year-old girl to sit still and learn about phonics and diphthongs. It is not developmentally appropriate. And what's the result of doing something that's not developmentally appropriate? What's the result of requiring five-year-olds to sit still and learn about phonics and diphthongs at five years of age? Boys aren't stupid. They look around and they see the girls are getting this and they don't. And Deborah Stipek, Dean of Education at Stanford School of Education, found that the result of these, she called them accelerated kindergartens. She, she was studying them back in the 1990s. These kindergartens that were teaching phonics at five years of age, the result by the end of the kindergarten year is boys who have negative attitudes towards school, boys who decided that I'm dumb and school's for girls. Boys who, by the time they start first grade, already have a negative attitude towards kindergarten. And I wrote about this in 2001 for the American Psychological Association in my paper titled Reclaiming Kindergarten, subtitle Making Kindergarten Less Harmful to Boys. I said, look, kindergarten has become first grade. So kindergarten is now first grade. Boys should not be starting kindergarten until six years of age. Let girls start kindergarten at age five. Let boys start kindergarten at age six. And Richard Reeves, in his, later, in his book of Boys and Men, which has gotten a lot of uh, attention, uh, his, his major concrete recommendation is that boys should start school one year later than girls. Uh, and I've, I've written about that, and, and we can talk about that. But uh, we've got something called the PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, where you compare kids around the world at 16 years of age. It's a very good test. It's not just a random multiple choice test. It really measures comprehension and understanding. It's very highly regarded. It is the best measure of how kids, uh, if you want to compare kids in this country with kids in England or Finland or Australia, this is your, your by far your best bet. PIA, PISA, P-I-S-A, Program for International Student Assessment. Well, American kids don't do very well, especially boys, uh, compared to kids in other countries. Uh, kids in Finland do better than kids in any other Western nation um, by a wide margin have for 20 years since the piece of really launched. Uh, 
why is that? You know, people have, have really racked their brains trying to figure out why that is. And, and again, in my book, I, I talk about the various hypotheses. One, one uh, researcher said, well, uh, it's the demographic homogeneity. Everybody in Finland is a white Finland person. Uh, they've got very little uh, uh, de demographic uh, variability, uh, very few immigrants. Uh, and that's the key to their success. It's a very homogenous population. So that was one claim. Another claim was, no, it's not demographic homogeneity. It's economic homogeneity that's important. In Finland, everybody's middle class. They don't really have many billionaires. They don't have homeless people. It's everyone's middle class. That's the key. And then another person said, no, 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 it's the weather. It's cold and it snows a lot in Finland. So that means people are indoors a lot and that creates strong bonds across generations. That's the key to the success of Finland. And then an American researcher made a remarkable discovery. He discovered the state of Utah. It turns out that Utah is a perfect match for Finland in terms of demographic homogeneity. The ma majority of people in Utah are white people and, and most of them are Mormon. Um, the the uh, uh, economic homogeneity. There aren't a lot of homeless people in in Utah. There aren't a lot of billionaires. It's mostly a middle class state. And what really makes this article uh, funny um, is snowfall. It turns out that Utah is a perfect match for Finland in terms of monthly average temperature and yearly average snowfall. Uh, so if any of the previous conjectures were true. Kids in Utah ought to be doing great because it's a perfect match for Finland. They ought to be doing really well on this test, the program for international student assessment, but they're not. Kids in Utah do no better than kids anywhere else in the United States. They lag far behind kids in Finland. So all those hypotheses are false. What's the true explanation? Why do kids in Finland do so much better? In Finland, it is unlawful for a kid to attend school until seven years of age, seven years of age. In Finland, if you were, if you were to start an American kindergarten and, and have five-year-olds sitting in a classroom learning phonics, you would be arrested, arrested and charged with a federal crime. That is a, a, a criminal offense. Uh, all right. Well, we get a two-year head start. Uh, Earlier is better, right? We start kids with phonics at five years of age. The Finns don't start till seven years of age. So our kids have a two-year head start. So we should, we should be blowing away the kids in Finland, but we're not. We're lagging far behind. Why? Because if you do something that's not developmentally appropriate, earlier is not better, it's worse. And the result of starting boys in phonics at five, year, five years of age is six-year-old boys who decided they hate school and schools for girls. And those at and Deborah Stipek at Stanford has shown those attitudes once formed are global, stable, and non-contingent. Global means this kid decides. Look, look, five-year-olds think in black and white. It would be very unusual to find a five-year-old who says, "Well, I am struggling a bit with phonics, but I'm really good at building a bridge out of blocks." Five-year-olds don't think that way. I'm dumb in phonics. I'm dumb in everything. Global, stable. This kid who thinks he's dumb at six years of age at age 15, thinks he's dumb. Once he dis dis defines himself that way, that self-concept is stable, never Steinbeck fine, stable over many years' time, and non-contingent. He doesn't think there's anything he can do or anything that you can do that's going to make any difference. That's why starting phonics early is so toxic, especially for boys. 
don't start until six or even seven years of age. There's a big difference between the brain of a seven-year-old and the brain of a five-year-old. And if you wait, as the Finns do, till the kid is ready, then everything goes great. The key to success in early education is to do the right thing at the right time. And what is the right time? Differs for girls compared with boys. That's a major focus of my book, Why Gender Matters. Wonderful. And, you know, I mean, as I know, as a teacher, when a child loves learning, they're just off to the races. Everything happens so quickly. And I mean, even if you break it down, I mean, phonics is not a skill that you get better and better and better at. You learn it and then you're done learning it. Then you know how to read. And the same with numeracy, you know, you know the numbers. Of course, afterwards, there's formulas you can learn. But and a problem solving skills are that's something you can develop your entire life. And I mean, I even have a memory of just a very distinct memory from preschool, sitting next to my school principal, learning how to read and feeling just this intense pain and boredom sounding out those letters. I mean, I went on luckily to love reading. And uh, but I think that, you know, if it's, it's really there's so many complexities and sometimes even parents are putting unconscious pressure on their child to perform when they're learning before they're ready that like they're doing this to please mommy and daddy. And so they get develop a lot of fear around those skills. And so um, I'm, I'm really glad that you're emphasizing this. It's just so important to just watch, listen, and, and you can tell when your child's ready. It's not an age per se. It might be, you know, you read to them every night and all of a sudden they're kind of noticing what sound a letter makes or, you know, making out a word and like, Oh, would you be interested in learning how to do this? Sure. Um, so, yeah, such an important point. I would like to talk a little bit about parental authority. Um, it's definitely a touchy subject in my community where there are a lot of unschoolers and people who believe that children should just follow their own interests. But I think that in general, people in my community look for a balanced approach. You know, what's the balance between saying, keeping your child safe, saying, no, you may not do this, you have to do that, and giving your child space to explore their own interests, especially when we see schools becoming more and more coercive. I mean, I subbed in schools that felt like prisons. So could and I and I think this is also a topic where you've been unfairly criticized in how you so could you uh, talk about what parental authority means to you and why you think it's so important? Well, sure. So I wrote a book called The Collapse of Parenting. uh, which was my only book actually to be a New York Times bestseller because I think it it did it did resonate uh, with, a nerve. <laughs> with it touched a nerve indeed. Um, so uh, I'll give uh, I'll give so let's start with uh, school choice. So I describe a child again for my own practice where parents. Uh, had decided to enroll her in a private school and were visiting various private schools. And one school was clearly the best match, had great teachers, uh, good physical plant, uh, very inspired leadership and lots of numbers showing that uh, value added over time was, was tremendous for all the kids. Uh, clearly a great fit for this girl. Uh, and they visited another school where, uh, that was clearly not the best fit. Um, the physical, the school is literally falling apart. Uh, the leadership would not provide any data on how school kids actually did. A lot of turnover among the teachers. But at the second school, the, uh, 
girl's uh, student buddy, the, the other students assigned to be with her for the day and show her around, they hit it off and she had a really great time. And the parents recommended the first school. But they let their daughter decide because they'd read in the New York Times, they'd heard on National Public Radio, that good parenting means letting kids decide. So they were basically functioning like educational consultants, making a recommendation. But the final choice was left in the hands of their eight-year-old. Well, the problem is that an eight-year-old is not competent to choose a school. An eight-year-old will choose a school based on where they think they'll have fun and where they think they'll have friends. That's developmentally appropriate. Uh, it is not age appropriate to let an eight-year-old child make the choice of school. Uh, but the parents did. Uh, she chose, they, they enrolled her in the wrong school. And I said, why'd you do that? And they said, well, if we sent her to the other school, we're worried if she didn't like it, she would blame us and she might refuse to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, done a lot of things for girls' schools and boys' schools. And I remember I visited a girls' school where the de director of admissions was so upset. She said she'd gotten a call from a mom in August. And the mom said, you know, I'm so sorry to be calling so late. And I know we're going to forfeit our deposit. And, and I begged and I pleaded and I bribed, but I just can't persuade her. She doesn't want to go to the girls' school. She wants to stay where she is at the co-ed school. And I can't make her go. And, and the director of admission was so tempted to say, actually, mom, you can make her go. The state gives you that authority. You can compel her to attend our school. And I promise you in the first week, she will love it. And, and the director of admission was so upset because she had heard from the parents and from the school reports that the other school, the code school, the girl was not speaking, was never talking, was never raising her hand. She said, that's her specialty. We would have helped her find her voice. This school would have been a great match for her. But it is not developmentally appropriate to let a 12-year-old choose a school. What is this 12-year-old girl supposed to say to her friends when her friend says, hey, why, why are you going to girls' school with kids you don't even know? Why aren't you staying with us? Is the girl, is the girl supposed to say, well, I thought there'd be fewer distractions in my studies of Spanish grammar. That's ridiculous to expect a girl to say that. You have to allow her to say, hey, I didn't want to go. My evil parents are making me go. Uh, the choice of school is a, is a choice that should be made by parents. Uh, but again, many parents have bought into this notion that good parenting means letting kids decide. And in some domains, that may be true, uh, but not in the domain of the choice of school. The choice of school or the choice of school format, homeschooling versus the public school, is a choice that should be made by the parents, not a choice that should be made by the student because an 8-year-old, a 12-year-old is not competent to make that choice. That's why they have parents. Uh, you know, and I give so many examples of this principle in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, overweight. In 1971, 4% of American kids were obese. Today, more than 20% of American kids are obese. Why did this happen? Well, there's a number of factors in play, which I explore, but one of them is that 50 years ago, parents told kids what's for supper, and now parents ask. So I was speaking to parents in Chappaqua, New York, which is an affluent suburb north of New York City. And a husband and wife told me how they had made a healthy, nutritious supper for their son and daughter. And the son and daughter came home and they said, ooh, yuck, we don't want to eat that. Can we just order pizza? And so dad sat down at his laptop and opened the Domino's Pizza website and took orders dictated to him by his son and his daughter. His son got the son's favorite pizza with his toppings and the daughter got her favorite pizza with her toppings. And I said to dad, why'd you do that? 
why didn't you just tell them this is what's for supper? And the dad was clearly alarmed and said, well, I don't believe in using starvation as a means of discipline. I said, look, they're not going to starve. 50 years ago, if mom made a healthy, nutritious supper and her kids didn't approve, she did not run out and buy them a pizza. She would say, this is what's for supper. If you don't like it, you can go to bed hungry. If you let kids decide what's for supper, well, there are some 12-year-olds who will choose broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, spinach, asparagus, and kale. But there are many 12-year-olds who will choose pizza, potato chips, french fries, and ice cream. And that is one factor. It's not the whole story, but it is one factor driving the five-fold explosion in kids who are obese in this country. Most 12-year-olds, certainly most 8-year-olds, are not competent to decide what's for supper. When parents let kids decide what's for supper, you end up harming the health of kids. Parents need to do their job. They need to find the confidence to assert the authority to do their job. And my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is all about empowering parents to do their job. Absolutely. And there's a reason that they're living at your house being supported by you. That's and, and I would say, and there's some important distinctions here, which is, first of all, because I've listened to you speak a lot, it doesn't mean that you can't explain a choice to a child. And when you're homeschooling, you have a lot more time to do that. And I know, for example, a parent who had a long talk with his child about limiting her time on screen, and she chose that she wanted to use that by a timer. And she has a very strong understanding of why she's doing that and where she wants to put her focus. But I think that also one really important element it, and we also interviewed Dr. Newfeld on the show, but is that that authority comes from a place of deep love. We're not talking about spanking kids or you starving kids. And that um, if, if your child feels that love, it's a lot easier to exert that authority. I mean, you know, for example, when I care for children, often, you know, what I'll say is like, okay, my darling, we're going outside now. No, I don't want to. But we are because that's healthy for you. It's it's not harsh or mean. It's just clear. Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan of Dr. Neufeld, and I actually had the privilege of interviewing him near his home in Vancouver as I was writing uh, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, and I think he's uh, I echo and uh, many of the points uh, that he makes in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, about the importance of prioritizing the parent child relationship. Uh, at every age, beginning in the early years, because again, as a family doctor, I see parents who, you know, everyone's busy and and they're spending their Saturday shuttling their kids from one play date to another. Don't do that. Cancel the play date. Make a family date instead. Find time to do fun things with your kid. That's got to be the foundation. Same relationships with same age peers are great. But they should not displace the parent-child relationship. That precious time you have on a Saturday afternoon should be for you and your kid to do something fun together, not for you to be driving them around to various playdates. That's so wonderful. Um, I feel like we should conclude on that note that when you're trying to understand that balance of authority and freedom, starting with that foundation, spending time together as a family, which homeschooling <laughs> allows you to do, is that's where these changes start coming from. So Dr. Sachs, there's just so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but um, <laughs> um, I, well, I wrap up every show by asking my guest, what's something exciting you're learning about now? Because I feel like this show is really about a passion for learning, cultivating that in our children, in ourselves, um, can be completely unrelated to anything we've spoken about today. 
Well, I don't know if excited is quite the right word, but I am deeply concerned by what we're learning about social media and screens and how immensely toxic they are uh, to kids. 40% of 8 to 12-year-olds are now on social media. And I'm uh, encouraging parents, lock it down, lock it down. Your 8-year-old, your 12-year-old, your 15-year-old should not be on social media. I'm very proud of my daughter, who is 17. Uh, for seven consecutive years, I've had the privilege of speaking to parents at J. Sarah Catholic High School in San Juan Capistrano, California. And uh, the year before last, I brought my daughter with me for a visit in August before her school started. And uh, the school vice president, Pat Reedy, interviewed my daughter on his podcast. And uh, if you can't find the link online, I can send it to you. Uh, and he said, so, Sarah, um, understand you're not on any social media, which is very unusual for an American high school student. Uh, you're not on any social media. Why is that? Is that because your dad won't let you? And she said, no, it's because I have a life. I have better things to do than to spend my free time scrolling through Instagram and TikTok. I was very proud of her. And she's very articulate about the things that she loves to do. She loves hiking. Uh, this past uh, July, she spent a month in the Wind River wilderness of Wyoming. Uh, that means 30 days with no tent and no toilet and no internet um, at 11,000 feet, um, uh, hiking 200 miles. Um, uh, uh, she's got better things to do than be on social media. So this new research on the immense toxicity of social media, I think, is not as familiar to American parents as it should be. And I'm constantly advising uh, parents of children uh, of teens, don't allow it, don't allow it. And the parents will say, yeah, but I heard on NPR that good parenting means letting kids decide. I said, in some domains, that may be true. But this is like alcohol. This is like letting 15-year-olds get drunk on vodka. It's not age appropriate. Don't let your kid, don't let your 15-year-old be on TikTok or Instagram. It's really harmful. And in that domain, good parenting means locking it down. Not, it's not, again, it's not fair to put that burden on your 15-year-old. What's she supposed to say? When a friend says, why aren't you on TikTok? Is she supposed to say, well, researchers have found, and the Surgeon General recently expressed concern that social media may increase the risk of anxiety and depression amongst teenagers. Again, it's ridiculous to expect a 15-year-old to talk that way. You have to allow her to say, hey, my evil parents won't let me. You have to have the courage to be the evil parent. You have so much great writing about social media addiction and how to navigate it. And we'll be sure to include some of those links in the show notes. And I do want to call out a, an amazing 15-year-old homeschooler who I think would be quite adept at sharing exactly that commentary about her oh, the way she navigates um, technology and social media. And you know, we love learning apps and engaged screen time and teaching kids how to use technology mindfully. But um, I, for myself, I do have all my social media apps deleted. There's a history of alcoholism in my family. And I just just makes me feel bad <laughs> when I look at them. So uh, it's such a crucial topic. And we'll definitely be diving into that more in some other episodes and sharing some of your wonderful writings on the topic. Well, thank you so much for all you do for families and children, Dr. Sachs. I mean, I admire you so much because I feel like you're one of the only you know people I've seen who's really capable of critical thinking and not just thinking... I'm right. I mean, I know you write letters to people who disagree with you and sometimes they don't write back. And you've revised a lot of your research over the years, which I think is just um, 
so important and unusual in this day and age. So I'm just really grateful for all of your contributions and for you taking the time to be with us today. Thanks again for inviting me. Absolutely. And if anybody needs more support on helping tailor their education to their boys' needs, um, understanding gender differences, if you agree very much with something we said today, um, I definitely encourage you to comment and share your thoughts. We are very much about free speech and open conversation here. So please don't hold back. And um, if you do feel like you need more support, go to teachyourkidspod.com and you can get expert tailored advice on your individual situation. So thank you again, Dr. Sachs, and I hope you enjoy your day. <laughs>